Welcome to Empire State Engagements. I'm Dr. Robert Childs. Dr. Michael B. Boston from SUNY Brockport is one of the leading revisionist scholars of Booker T. Washington, focusing on Washington's efforts to increase African-American entrepreneurship in the early 20th century. I spoke with Dr. Boston about his interventions, and in particular about his brand new article for the New York History Journal on Washington's influence on black entrepreneurship in New York City. Washington and his annual addresses at the National Negro Business League, even his local ones going to New York City, he would tell them what you have and what you should have. And one of the things he promoted to New Yorkers in 1900 that they, you know, there should be a bank here. We have banks in the South, but you know, you have a large African-American population here, you don't have a bank. So yes, Washington was this catalyst, I think, that really pulled, uh, people together to, uh, you know, encourage them to be more proactive business-wise, not just for themselves, but for their communities as well. Welcome to Empire State Engagements. I am thrilled to be joined today by Dr. Michael B. Boston. Dr. Boston is Associate Professor in the Department of African and African American Studies at the State University of New York, Brockport. He is the author of an important major revisionist study of Booker T. Washington entitled uh, The Business Strategy of Booker T. Washington, which was published by University Press of Florida. He's also co-author of a book on Dr. P.H. Skinner's School for Blind uh, and Deaf African American Students in Western New York, and additionally, Dr. Boston's next monograph, uh, Blacks in Niagara Falls, 1849 to 1985, will be published later in 2021 by SUNY Press. Now his latest work, his latest article, which is the focus of our conversation today, uh, is on Booker T. Washington and the New York City Business League. And this is uh, appearing in 
issue 102.1 of the New York History Journal, which of course I enthusiastically encourage everyone watching to subscribe to and read uh, as often as you can. Um, and so I am excited to have uh, Dr. Boston here to talk about that and uh, his broader works. So uh, welcome, Michael. Nice to be here. Thanks for having me. I'm, uh, it's, it's really a privilege to have you here um, because I really appreciate uh, your revisionist uh, take on Booker T. Washington in general, including in the article, but also in your broader work. And you really present what I think could be described as a radical challenge to the conventional wisdom. And I think it's uh, a compelling and nuanced challenge to the sort of consensus view of Booker T. Washington. And at the heart of your argument is his entrepreneurial philosophy. And I think this is a very important intervention. So I think as a starting point, uh, if you don't mind, uh, could you spell out for us a bit uh, what Washington's entrepreneurial philosophy and business program were, um, sort of what he was looking at uh, as how he was going to make this work? Okay, I think uh, most people that study Booker T. Washington are exposed to his industrial education uh, pro uh, program. And um, I think most historians and, and a lot of laypersons, when they focused on him, you know, they looked at that in terms of an educational sense and not really focusing on it from an entrepreneurial uh, perspective. And right after construction, when Washington, you know, rose to leadership after that 1895 uh, Atlanta Exposition address, he, uh, I would say by 1891, he had his business philosophy uh, intact in terms of what he wanted to do. And he really saw that as an upliftment uh, strategy. He wanted African-Americans to be laborers, but also to be entrepreneurs because he saw entrepreneurs as being the real shakers and makers of policies within, within American society. So at the highest state of his upliftment program was this business philosophy of creating these, these entrepreneurs. So if you look at his philosophy, it's, it's similar to a lot of uh, business persons' uh, philosophies. If you look at some of the um, prominent American elites that uh, promoted, um, you know, economic development, um, he, he, learn or he took some things or from some of those individuals. So in terms of his philosophy, he was basically telling his people to get practical education, education that could be applied to um, doing some type of entrepreneur activity. Um, and if, if you look at a lot of his speeches, they really spell out uh, philosophy, not a single speech, but different speeches really spell it out. So he's, number one, he's telling his people to get um, uh, practical education that can be applied because he saw his people coming out of uh, the slavery era as um, needing to get skills, as a lot of us know when we study Booker T. Washington, but get these skills so you can make yourself an economic force. And that, you know, of course, that would be 
being an entrepreneur. So if you look at his speeches, once again, he has such as earn a skill, uh, you know, be able to market that skill. And not just to the African-American market, to the entire uh, market of, of any, any, anybody that wanted a good or, or service. Um, you know, learn, a, get an economic niche, do a particular activity so well that, uh, you know, you'll be in demand. Um, pay the price of business uh, success. Like any entrepreneur, you have to work hard. You have to stay abreast of your uh, trade or whatever um, profession uh, that, that you're in. And this was also part of his strategy to help end the race problem too, because he envisioned that if African-Americans made themselves, uh, uh, you know, a force within communities that was of value reflecting merit, then, uh, you know, that community of races would uh, embrace those entrepreneurs and those people and not want to hate them and kick them out of the community. Now, where, did, where does this uh, type of philosophy originate? It originated uh, from his experience running Tuskegee Institute because he saw Tuskegee as being this, um, this uh, asset to the community that was value. I mean, at first, he talks about enough from slavery, um, his second autobiography about how people were leery. A lot of whites in the community were leery that this was going to just create uh, liberal arts persons that were going to try to live by their wits, what have you. But he was saying, if I make, you know, if we make ourselves indispensable assets, offer merit to the community, this would be a way of, uh, you know, helping to end uh, the race problem. So he had other components that were part of his business philosophy. And, you know, in starting the Negro, National Negro Business League, he wanted to spread this philosophy. Now, I myself, when I look at history, I don't see anybody or any African-American being a promoter of this business development to the extent that Washington was. And I myself call him the the father of uh, 20th century African-American uh, business development. So there are other components. I mean, people like uh, one of your former colleagues, uh, Lewis Harlem, uh, you know, when he talked about Booker T. Washington, he did not say that he was an entrepreneur. Uh, Lewis Harlem wrote an early article. It was published, as I remember, 1969. When he looked at Washington, you know, he didn't really look at him from a business sense. He just said he's, he wasn't a, you know, he wasn't a businessman, even though he created the National Negro Business League. And Harlem is one of these people that, you know, pretty much was saying his philosophy was narrow, like W.E.B. Du Bois, because he was advocating business, uh, you know, within the, just the African-American community. And I myself, I dispute that based on you know, the records that I, that I have seen and, and seeing what Booker T. Washington's overall philosophy for his people was. So business development was an integral part of his philosophy. And that's where I come in. And I like to push people towards looking at that. Because when I first really got into the studies of Washington, I, I got a lot of negative feedback. Oh, you know, that's a road well-traveled, uh, that's been covered. Um, and then, you know, I heard people really dismissing him, belittling him. And I looked into it and I focused on that aspect because I have an economic background. So I looked at that and I saw that and I wanted to really push that out for, 
for people to look at and see. And as they read uh, prim his primary sources, speeches, or what have you, focus on that too. So, well, I was actually going to ask you about that because I noticed um, that you not only have uh, your uh, doctorate in history, but you also have, I think, an MBA, right? So, so you you have multiple angles that you can approach this from. And you, you noted in the book uh, that there are a lot of uh, 20th century African-American business people who very openly invoke Booker T. Washington. And so that's an interesting starting point to then go back to the history. Um, how did your business background uh, influence your ability to understand uh, what was going on in this, in this business history? You know, when I read up from slavery, I could see, you know, clearly uh, some of the, the, the business concepts. And uh, when he talked about merit and how you, you're making yourself an indispensable asset in your community and uh, things so, such, as, such as that. And then uh, when I broadly looked at other communities and I looked at entrepreneurs from all the way up to 1955, where there were cities that, even small towns, I should say, but mainly cities that had African-American entrepreneurs, I found that a lot of those individuals paid homage to Booker T. Washington. I mean, I found them all over America, you know, mainly in the South but they really paid homage to his economic uh, philosophy, the business people I'm talking about, uh, such as uh, George Gaston in uh, Birmingham, Alabama, he Washington, and the fact that he wanted to attend Tuskegee, but he was not financially able to attend Tuskegee. But he did read up from slavery, and he talked about how much of a value it was for him. And he, he embraced this concept of... Um, you know, offering goods and services within this community, becoming an indispensable um, uh, economic force with, or asset within this community. And um, Black Enterprise Magazine uh, in the 90s, I don't remember the specific year, but they noted George Gaston as being um, the most prominent African-American entrepreneur in the 20th century, because, uh, you know, when he passed away, his, you know, business was worth millions and millions and millions and millions of dollars. And a lot of people would have thought it was John Johnson of uh, Ebony, but it was this um, uh, George Gaston. But the business background, um, it allowed me to focus, uh, you know, more on pulling out those economic uh, dimensions. And um, Washington really focused on that, um, you know, he was very much influenced by um, Lewis Adams, who was uh, a local entrepreneur in Tuskegee. And, you know, he was one of these persons that Washington mentions in his speeches and in Up From Slavery is experienced slavery, never went into the classroom, had the opportunity to go into a classroom, but he, had, he was a jack of all trades type of person. And he had a, a hardware store in Tuskegee, Alabama, making that catered to the whole community of Macon County. And he talked about how this individual offered uh, goods to the community and how much of a value he was. And he really, you know, he, he respected him very highly for the skills that he had. And this was part of the things he was trying to pass on. So yes, the business I think really helped me more to hone in on the economic dimensions. Whereas before I did not see 
a lot of earlier historians uh, do that. It's, it's clear to me that um, you really uh, caught on to something because uh, you make very clear that it wasn't just uh, a philosophy. It was a philosophy that was put into action, which, I mean, Washington is, as you point out again and again, he's about operating within a real-life context and trying to make people's lives better, both in the moment and in the long run, in, you know, dealing with real conditions. Um, and so you argue, you demonstrate, I think, that Washington, these are your words, he aggressively promoted his entrepreneurial ideas. Um, what were some of the ways that he pr promoted uh, this business philosophy you're talking about? Well, um, I think he promoted with the students, you know, in his, uh, when, when he was on campus, because he was away probably at least one third of the year trying to raise funds. But when he was on campus, his uh, Sunday chats to the students, he uh, would echo this philosophy, you know, telling them to make themselves um, indispensable assets. Uh, if you're going to be farmers, take it to the highest degree, become a, an, an entrepreneur as a farmer where you're selling goods and sell these goods uh, in the market. You know, um, that was one way. Also on campus, uh, he had various businesses in which he incorporated the students uh, into those businesses. And those goods like printing, uh, mattress uh, making, um, wagon making, uh, those were sold to the communities in which the students engaged in that and they got lessons in that. Well, let me say this as well. I mean, in terms of the way he operated uh, Tuskegee, he was, uh, you know, like a business executive. He operated Tuskegee as though it was a corporation. He had lower level people, he gave them responsibilities. And he expected them to, you know, adhere to them. There were chains of command, so on and so forth. Washington wanted to know how much milk was uh, produced for the day, uh, what students got expelled, how much uh, revenue was, was sent in. And then for conferences, it started off in nationally in Boston in 1900, and it continued to 1915 when he passed away. And the records for these... Uh, conventions uh, or conferences, they have been recorded. And, you know, I've gone through uh, most of them. And in them, you can see how various entrepreneurs, they describe how they promote to others, how they could be successful business-wise. And these types of ideas, Washington wanted to have in specific communities to encourage other people. He wanted these delegates to go out and encourage uh, other people. And at the end of each one of these conventions, he would give an annual uh, message. And in those message, messages, he would highlight various concepts in terms of entrepreneurship. And as time went on, he even had uh, people that we could call experts give um, talks about uh, you know, how to keep better records, how to advertise better and so on and so forth. Now that was nationally. Also, as a leader, um, he went about the country in various communities and gave local addresses. I found uh, local addresses in which he talked to people uh, about, uh, business, about business development. So he did it on various levels. Well, I, 
I'd like to pick up on the, the creation of the National Negro Business League in 1900 that you just invoked a moment ago. Um, there are some uh, you've pointed out, including uh, Du Bois himself, that think that this as uh, sort of the brainchild of Du Bois and his uh, coming out of Atlanta in 1899. Uh, and you pretty definitively demonstrate that this is coming uh, from Washington and some of his associates. Um, what is the relationship uh, between um, that sort of emerging, because it hasn't burst yet, but that emerging controversy between the two, these two men uh, and their two sort of schools of thought and uh, the creation of the National Negro Business League? And does it fit into that narrative? Does it challenge that narrative at all? Well, that's an excellent question. And in my chapter on the National Business League, I, I addressed that. Um, W.E.B. Du Bois was uh, head of the, the business division of the Afro-American League. The Afro-American League was the, uh, the first national civil rights organization in this country. And people that uh, in history that were opposed to each other, uh, they were actually in that organization. The way historians have written about how they were opposed to each other. Ida B. Wells was in it. Uh, du Bois was in it. Washington was in it. T. Thomas Fortune was in it. And Du Bois was, uh, he was uh, head of the business department of that organization. And as you and many others are aware, at Atlanta University, Du Bois uh, he had these annual conferences when he was there, and one of his uh, first uh, encyclopedia publications was the Negro, in, um, in which he uh, gave out surveys across the country uh, to take that data and write, uh, you know, like a five, six hundred page encyclopedia book on the, the Negro in business. Um, in 1900, Washington started uh, the organization. And um, Du Bois has even written, I found an article uh, in which he wrote, he came up with that idea as though, you know, he were the, he kind of hints that he was sort of like the father of this uh, Negro Business League idea. Now it's a controversial, it, it's, it's a debate in terms of who actually came up with the idea. But uh, Washington, believe it or not, he even, uh, it, at this, in 1900, Du Bois and Washington had a friendly relationship. I mean, um, Du Bois had even come and participated at the Negro Farmers Conference. And, uh, you know, as some people are aware, Washington offered uh, Du Bois a job at least twice. And he wrote a letter of recommendation for him to be superintendent of Negro ed education in Washington, D.C. Du Bois didn't get that job. So Washington asked him for, uh, you know, a list of uh, Negro, what they called then Negro businessmen in the country to send out a flyer to the people uh, to participate in the, the first uh, National Negro Business League meeting in, in 1900. So they had a friendship, but Washington took that idea further and actually institutionalized uh, that, that idea. And he considered himself the founder. But once again, us, we people that were not there involved in the process, I think a lot of us more so debate who's the, who's the real father, whether it's uh, 
Du Bois or whether it's Washington. I mean, Washington himself took credit for finding it. And as I just mentioned earlier, Du Bois took credit for uh, finding and promoting that idea in which uh, uh, Booker T. Washington embraced and took off and created this uh, institution. It didn't become uh, a problem, at least Du Bois didn't really highlight that until they actually had this confrontation when Du Bois wrote uh, in his book, The Soul of Black Folks, of Mr. Booker T. Washington and others. That's when it, it, it actually came out after that. So uh, it's a debate. Uh, I, I look at it as though that, uh, uh, you know, Du Bois did this early work, but uh, Washington actually, you know, institutionalized it. And as a matter of fact, after uh, Washington institutionalized that idea, uh, as I remember reading this, uh, Du Bois still remained, at least in the Afro-American League, uh, until it ultimately, um, you know, no, no longer existed. You know, it only lasted for maybe four years or something like that. But, um, but like I said, they had a friendly relationship into that article of Mr. Booker T. Washington and others. And just, you know, it's, it's a debate. Which, which side do people want to go on? The people that tend to uh, support uh, Du Bois, and that he was the founder, and ones that support Washington would say that he's, he's the founder. So perhaps we'll never find out who the original... Um, founder is, but we know Washington institutionalized it. Yeah. Well, even even this, even the, the ambiguity, I think is an important intervention because so many people from uh, when Du Bois writes about why, writes of Mr. Booker T. Washington and others, and from that point forward, people just sort of assume there's always this rift, and, and it's a lot more complicated than that. And, and I appreciate you you bringing that back up because I think later on when we circle back to sort of the legacies of this, I think it's important for us uh, to remember that it wasn't always this sort of weird dichotomy that 21st century uh, historians uh, sort of assume. And it wasn't just 21st century historians, it's been a hundred years worth of historians, as you, as you point out in your book. Uh, <laughs> well, uh, in your book, which as I said, I'd like to return to a bit later on, uh, you suggest that having made this argument about uh, Washington's business strategy, um, you said that uh, now this sort of, the, your book lays a foundation and others are going to have to look at case studies. And fortunately for us, uh, you present one of those case studies. You took up the call uh, and you look at New York City in this article that's coming out uh, for New York History Journal. And so um, first, one of the things that I found exciting about uh, the article um, is that you pointed out, and you mentioned it a moment ago, Booker T. Washington spent a lot of time away from Tuskegee raising funds, and you point out in the article that he spent a lot of that time in New York City. And so I'm wondering uh, what kind of experiences Washington had in New York City in general, who were some of his connections? What were some of his uh, experiences that might have been influential for him? Um, overall, uh, is there any influence or impact of the New York experiences on Booker T. Washington? Well, I, 
think he realized that that was the, you know, number one cosmopolitan uh, city in the United States. And um, it was a place that he was going to have to go to, to, uh, you know, raise funds, you know, enough from slavery. He has that chapter in there about uh, raising money. Um, I think he developed a strategy uh, in terms of uh, raising money that probably filtered down to his other, his business philosophy uh, that, uh, you know, in terms of raising money, he was going to go through a procedure. He was going to introduce his school and talk about his school. He wasn't going to beg these New York City entrepreneurs or, or New England entrepreneurs for money. He was just going to highlight his school and positive things that his school was doing and what his school was doing to elevate the, uh, you know, his racial group. Um, I think some of these entrepreneurs uh, realized that they had made or their families or what had made tremendous profits on the uh, slavery period with cotton and so on and so forth. And they were like Andrew Carnegie in the sense that uh, they felt that they were uh, sort of like a higher human being that, okay, you have all of this wealth, but uh, you got, you know, you want to, uh, you know, do good. It's almost like God gave you all this wealth. Now you have to uh, not just have it, but you have to make society better. So, you know, he would go through his procedure and in introducing his school. And, um, and then later he talked about maybe five years later, he would get a large contribution to those people. And, you know, so I think it helped uh, highlight a system that he developed, you know, dealing with uh, uh, Viola Ruffner when he was a child. She taught him to develop a system when you do something and do it consistently. These entrepreneurs uh, in New York City uh, that he ent interacted with uh, William Baldwin, for example, uh, who became, uh, he became, he was on the board of directors for Tuskegee Institute. He helped Washington with his finance, the school's finances. He helped the school get his finances on a higher level. And Washington and up from slavery even makes the point that he wanted his school to be on uh, the same level as a top level business. Uh, he really helped to bring that out. So that's something that he got uh, from him. Uh, and, and, and the other entrepreneurs as well. I'm just trying to remember, remember some of them off the top of my head. But in terms of the African-American uh, entrepreneurs, um, I think he, he, you know, he admired uh, some of their, their creations, like T. Thomas Fortune, for example. He, he created the um, a newspaper that was uh, the top newspaper in the, in, in the in the country, the New York Age. So he res he respected him uh, for that. And um, and um, you know there were smaller entrepreneurs, and he always had a, a saying. And I think uh, uh, Armstrong, Samuel Chapman Armstrong uh, instilled that into him that you know all labor is honorable as long as it's you know it's it's it's, it's honest. So I think him just operating in their setting, particularly in New York City, I think it really reinforced uh, some of the principles uh, that from the African-American entrepreneurs reinforced some of uh, his, his basic principles. But people like William Baldwin really helped to, uh, I think, develop his uh, entrepreneur uh, philosophy, 
you know, even, even uh, uh, better. And I think by him seeing New York City, I even to what uh, Tuskegee Institute could be, what uh, other African-American entrepreneurs could uh, achieve if they were persistent and they worked out a system and, uh, you know, you know, did develop economic niches and uh, stayed abreast of their, their fields. Uh, they could, you know, go as far uh, as, as, as far as possible. Um, I just think it helped to reinforce a lot of his principles, but, but William Baldwin really, really, really uh, helped him uh, economically because William Baldwin is the one who actually sent uh, uh, an auditor to Tuskegee to help get his records uh, up to par. And Washington really learned a lot from that auditor, auditoring, auditoring the records of Tuskegee uh, Institute, so. That's great. I, um, it's interesting because we, I think, often associate the, the African-Americans who were most enthusiastic about Washington with uh, the South, and of course, most African American population was still in the South at this time. And and you point out that the the Negro Business League had a lot more uh, local uh, chapters in the South, but New York City's branch became a very important one. Um, and there were some very important uh, African American businessmen who who were part of this and who were close associates of Washington. You mentioned. Uh, T. Thomas Fortune a moment ago. Um, there were also people who were helping to form this uh, New York uh, branch. Wilford Smith and James E. Garner seem to be important in your story. And, and you had pointed out in the article that even a few years earlier, there had been um, the Afro-American Investment and Building Company, right? And so there were people in New York who were starting to do the kind of thing Washington was calling for. So it seems like a natural fit, I guess, is my question. Yeah, I mean, I think you're spelling it out. I mean, there was a, you know, a group of people there and uh, New York City is ex expanding even more and more in population, particularly the African-American population, because of the, the migration movements after 1890. They're coming from the South and they're coming from the, the Caribbean. And uh, so, you, you know, as you, as you hinted, there, there's a group of people that are there and, you know, a uh, small group and they're, they're, they're entrepreneurs. And, but I think when Washington came in there, he kind of uh, galvanized these individuals, you know, brought them together uh, to form this organization where they would get inspiration and encourage other people to, um, you know, to, to create, uh, to create businesses. Um, I mean, Frederick Moore, for example, uh, was this economic nationalist that was, you know, he was before out before Washington. But when Washington came along, it just really uh, pushed him to really go out even more and give speeches even more in terms of promoting the African-American businesses. And he even became the... Uh, the national organizer for the National Negro Business League. So he, he went about New York City and he traveled organizing uh, local branches of the National Negro Business League or trying to um, bring them together if they had diffused. Uh, you know, you had Philip A. Patton, 
you know, some people are familiar with him. And he talked about he, that he was at a, a National Negro Business League meeting, I believe, as I remember, it was Louisville. He was at one of those national conventions and he got the, well, he was inspired and it helped him to form his realty company. And, you know, as you and others know that he's uh, designated as the father of Harlem because he, um, he got these, he got some uh, white uh, home uh, building owners, apartment building owners to allow him to rent those buildings out. And he, of course, rented them out to African-Americans and, you know, you had white flight and uh, this is how Harlem, you know, uh, there were entrepreneurs there, but um, Washington's agency served as a, a unit to pull them together, to work together, uh, to promote the expansion of other, other, other businesses. Because, you know, as I mentioned in that article, one of, you know, Washington, he, uh, he had uh, researchers at Tuskegee that would research communities and they would tell him what were, what the communities had. And Washington would, Monroe Works, for example, is one of these researchers that, you know, would let Washington know what communities had. And, and Washington in his annual addresses at the National Negro Business League, even his local ones going to New York City, he would tell them what you have and what you should have. And one of the things he promoted to New Yorkers in 1900 that they, you know, there should be a bank here. We have banks in the South, but you know, you have a large African-American population here. You don't have a bank. So yes, Washington was this catalyst, I think, that really pulled uh, people together to, uh, you know, encourage them to be more proactive business-wise, not just for themselves, but for their communities as well. Because keep in mind, he was for racial upliftment. So it wasn't just for the individual, it was for the group. Help yourself and then also help others. Be a captain of, uh, you know, industry. You be uh, a role model in your community by people seeing you and that will encourage others uh, if, you know, if they were hesitant, hesitant about doing it. Because remember, his strategy is if you make yourself an indispensable asset to your community, and not just your community, others, if you grow to become an economic force to reckon with, that's going to help in the, in the, uh, the race problem. Well, I think it's a really fascinating, there's two points you brought up there that I'd love to explore. One is, I, I think you do such a nice job of showing how the Booker T. Washington as this national leader and various entrepreneurs around the country, including in New York, they sort of grow from each other. You point out in the book, especially, that um, after Washington became so sought after as a speaker after 1895, he's traveling around the country and you, you say, you know, he witnesses what African-American entrepreneurs are doing and, and achieving in places all around the country. And that helps him, I think you say, sort of develop this vision that he already had, but seeing it uh, in a more broad national scope of entrepreneurship for racial uplift. And then he provides a national framework for people who had been doing that sort of thing in New York and elsewhere to come together and have that sort of national leadership and, and national sort of movement. And so it's, it's, I think you present it as a very sort of elegant collaboration that comes together in these years. And it's, it's really fascinating to see how those levels uh, worked together. 
Um, and I, I, I hope I'm, I'm sort of understanding it correctly because to me it's, it's fascinating how it's sort of he and the grassroots sort of working, not collaboratively, I mean, he's the leader, but, but sort of learning from one another. Does that, is that a proper characterization? Yes, I think so. Yes, 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 and definitely. I, I also loved in the article when you say, you know, he shows up with the statistics in 1909, 1910. Um, he's looking at the census numbers and he's saying, based on your population in New York City, you ought to have this many uh, businesses and you ought to have this much. And uh, I think he basically implies that it's uh, New York at the moment was a missed opportunity for African-American business. Um, how did New Yorkers, uh, African-American New Yorkers, respond to this? Because you demonstrate in your article that professionalism grew in the years after that. Uh, was, were people alarmed? Did they try to, try to make more of what Booker T. Washington said was a great opportunity in New York? I would say, um, I think the majority of people, the masses, uh, and some of the middle class, a lot of the middle class, you know, I think they res respected Washington's uh, words. I mean, everywhere you always had people that were uh, pro-anti-Washington. So I think some of the people that were, you know, anti-Washington as time goes on, they might slight some of his uh, statements and ignore it and not really want to pay much attention to it. But I think, I think a lot of these people, uh, they res they respected it, and uh, you know, a lot of them strove to to uh, to do to do better. Um, I think that's how they. I think this is how they generally took it. I see the masses in general really re re respecting Washington. And I think I think some of the intellectual class uh, may have had a had a problem with uh, you know some some of his ideas, but um, I think people in the African American population in general. Um, they respected him. If they didn't necessarily agree with something, you know, they didn't out come out right and say, from what I've seen, uh, this is nonsense or what 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 have you. Uh, so he was able to capture the masses. I would say the same Marcus Garvey was able to generally uh, capture the masses as opposed to a small group of uh, intellectuals. It reminds me of an article that I think was published in the, wor the world's work in which Washington talked about the intellectuals. He said, they know books, but they don't know life. You know, that was one of his, uh, one, one of his critiques. But to answer your question, I would say in, in general, that, you know, they, they res, res, respected it. And, and um, some of the comments that were written in uh, the books that were published on the National Negro Business League from people that were there was like, they were amazed that Washington knew so much about their communities when he started uh, spewing those statistics. They, they were really, uh, they would say, that, oh, wow, how, how does he know so much about us? You know, people like Monroe Works, who was uh, a tremendous researcher, wrote many articles himself and uh, some encyclopedia, he and others with, with this information. But to answer your question, I would say in general, they, they were really uh, supportive of what, what he had to say. And they, and they were pleased that he was in their communities uh, speaking, that he had visited their communities uh, to speak, sort of like a great leader visiting your community and people, the masses respecting that. Yeah. Well, I, it comes through in your, uh, in your article that in New York, 
there were a lot of people who were really responsive to this movement. And you talked um, a bit about uh, Afro-American Realty, uh, which I think, I mean, it has a revolutionary influence on New York, uh, but uh, there were others. There was uh, earlier than that, the Metropolitan Mercantile and Realty Company. Um, and they had, it sounds like they had a, a few very good years. I mean, they had uh, land they were buying in New York and New Jersey. They were promoting home ownership. Um, what are the, I, I know it only lasted about a decade or so, but it seems to have had some legacies as far as training people for business and also promoting uh, entrepreneurship and home ownership, right? Yes. Yes, it did. Uh, you know, they were uh, conscious of, uh, you know, segregation within society racism and they talked about uh well some of their members go to specific schools um some might have gone to schools that accepted some african-americans and, and these african-americans would could have high grades but when they got out and, and searched for a job because of racism they would ultimately not be hired in these you know companies corporations and they highlighted that you know they they needed to form businesses so they could provide the opportunities, you know, owning land and um, uh, and these these students getting training within a, a corporation. You could get, they would argue that you could get the book training in school, but if you didn't have anywhere to go uh, to practice that, you couldn't really de develop that. So they were promoting their people to create these businesses to incorporate uh, some members of their racial group so that that they could also. They, that they could also uh, have the opportunity. And you know, they wanted to patronize, uh, you know, their businesses. Um, some of them would, uh, you know, highlight the, the, the race situation that, uh, you know, we may have, our products may cost, a, you know, a little more money, but in the end, we're trying to uplift, uh, uplift uh, our racial group and um, you just have to be patient, you know? <laughs> so, you know, those were, you know, some of those things that some of these corporations uh, did, uh, you know, during, during that time period. And, I, you know, as you mentioned, yeah, that was uh, created before Business League. And it goes back to your other question that, yes, there, there were entrepreneurs there that were, um, you know, trying to be successful bus uh, business persons. So. And I loved, I mean, they, they did have some really, important legacies, even after the firm uh, was defunct. You, you gave the example of um, Irene Mormon, who became a, um, she, she got her training through the company, but then after they were gone, she herself went into business, I think in Brooklyn, right, as a realtor. And so the legacies outlived the, the organizations themselves. Yes, yes. And, and, and not only that, she participated in the uh, National Negro Business League meetings. Uh, there was a session in which she uh, she did the afternoon sessions and he did the evening, so she she, she became a hostess of the National Business. It was in one of the times that it was in New York. It was in New York and a, a, a general conference was in New York in 1905 and 19, 1910. Yeah, so she's involved practically and uh, you know theoretically. She's helping any way she, that she can. Yes. Um, there's a, when, when they were in 1910 in New York, 
Um, this seems like an interesting moment in uh, Booker T. Washington's history because his address there, you point out, was a time when he sort of went off of his usual script and he was very, uh, he was more assertive than usual in public, at least, in calling out the lack of law and order in the South with lynch law um, and criticizing that in New York uh, at that conference, if, if I remember correctly. Um, and you wrote, uh, you mentioned uh, Lewis Harlan earlier and sort of the, the private um, Booker T. Washington versus the public Booker T. Washington. Was that speech in New York, it seems important to me, is that a moment of the, the private Booker T. Washington coming into the public or am I reading too much in, into that? Personally, I think Booker T. Washington probably was fed up <laughs> with some of the racial injustice that was going on. And I think he he felt uh, it, it was time, to, it was appropriate to say something. I mean, when the National Negro Business League was first formed, uh, 1899, you know, I mean, when they had their organ organizing meetings um, and in 1900, when they actually had the first conference, he made it a point of saying that he wanted the National Negro Business League to be strictly an economic or business upliftment organization. He didn't want politics or he didn't want, uh, you know, you know, political issues uh, discussed, just economic upliftment. And there were, there were delegates that actually wanted to come and discuss uh, political issues, or they wanted to come and discuss other entrepreneurs that they said were not, they were they were telling a lie, they were not what they really, he always suppressed it, that negative talk because he wanted this organization to be positive. Now, when he deviated away in 1910, that was very, very, very unusual because I've looked at, uh, I've looked at probably 13 of the, uh, the speeches that he gave of the or 14, I should say, of the speeches that he gave at the National Negro Business League National Conventions. And he does not stray away. So that's why I'm saying, personally, I think he felt uh, that something needed to be said. But as you can see, he made that statement, but he always came back to, to business. Um, so that's 1910. You know, as he's progressing on in life, uh, you know, that's what, how many... That's, the Atlanta Exposition Address was given in, uh, what, 1895, so that's, what, 15 years after. I think he just grew to the point where he was frustrated. He felt he needed to say something, but it was still kind of polite. It wasn't like uh, a Du Bois, or it wasn't like the way a Malcolm X would say it. It was still said in a polite, rational type of way, and that, that was his uh, approach. So, I wouldn't say behind the scenes thing coming out, uh, as Harlem points out, but uh, I just think he felt it needed to be said, and he said it, I think, in a polite way too. You know. Um, well, I, I think it's it's important because again, it <laughs> it, it, it complicates the sort of cliches that we're taught about Booker T. Washington. And, and so it's, it's, an, it's an important addition. And as you suggest, um, he's getting fed up with this continued, and you say in the book uh, toward the end, um, and I think it, it, 
goes well with, with the story you tell in the article. Um, the structural racism endured, and that often undermined uh, some of the potential business successes. We certainly see that in the New York story, where there are ways where they really did for a while successfully uh, pursue this business vision, but they, you still slam into this wall of structural racism that the entrepreneurship maybe isn't enough to, to press through in the moment anyway. Uh, I think uh, even though some of those businesses, uh, you know, failed, uh, some of those individuals in those businesses, they continued on in, in other ways in, in an entrepreneurial uh, type of way. And I think that, you know, that's sort of like the record of uh, businesses that a lot of them um, fail, you know, but, um, you know, people, you know, are, are pers per persistent. And I think that's the message that Washington wanted to get across that, uh, you know, if you fail, if, if the venture fails, take what you can learn from that experience and, and um, just keep pushing on and pushing on. And if you look at Up From Slavery, uh, you know, when, when he's making bricks, for example, you've read Up From Slavery and he talks about it. It was the fourth time in which uh, the, 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 the brick mill was, was uh, formed. Three times, most people, the other teachers, students, they gave up but he was persistent. So I think, you know, some of these entrepreneurs, they were successful in, in other, other ways. And, and the message that he wants to give is for them to be persistent until they develop something and, and to be an example for, for others, to let them know that uh, if you really wanted to advance in American society, that uh, you had to try to make more than a set salary. And you know, the, the people that were really making decisions affecting people in society, policymakers, these were the, um, you know, the major entrepreneurs. Uh, and he wanted his uh, racial group to grow to be a, a part of that, to become a force to reckon with. And as I said, you know, a number of times that uh, this was his strategy. You, you pull yourself up. Uh, you know, the policymakers in communities, he always said, you show me any community and, you know, the, the influential people uh, shape, shaping policies in those communities, they're, they're often the, the uh, significant entrepreneurs in those communities. So, yeah. Well, one of the things that's really, I would say, inspiring about this persistence that you're describing is that it's, it, it comes from a drive, which is really clearly spelled out by Booker T. Washington and in your articulation of his business philosophy that is uh, very nuanced, right? It wasn't um, only, it wasn't accommodationist, as you point out, and it wasn't only individualist or purely laissez-faire. It was about business success, and it did, as, as you point out in the book, uh, follow sort of maybe a little bit of the Protestant work ethic and things like that, but it wasn't just for yourself. It wasn't just to enrich yourself. That persistence was on behalf of then succeeding so that you could uplift an entire community, an entire race. Um, and there's something, uh, again, it's sort of, it's very nuanced on the one hand, but on the other, other hand, 
there's something very inspiring about that sort of group project uh, and the persistence in that. And we certainly see it in the New York case. Um, I, I think that one way we see that is the way that, that over the decades um, we see New York really become um, the heart of sort of modern African-American culture. Um, and, and you already mentioned one of the key figures, but what is the role of this story that you tell in setting the stage for the, the creation of what we think of as modern Harlem? You know, in, that, in the last chapter in the book, I talk about the legacy of, uh, you know, Booker T. Washington. And in that chapter, I, I go nationally. I don't just focus on uh, New York, but uh, the legacy in terms of developing, you know, aspects of Harlem is um, these individuals like uh, Frederick Moore, you know, he continued to espouse uh, that philosophy and he became uh, head of a newspaper, as I remember, Voices of the, of the Negro. Um, and, you know, and there were other, other people as well. I mean, um, even Marcus Garvey uh, talked about uh, his influence from Booker T. Washington. He saw Washington as a real a leader, African-American leader. He respected Washington uh, because he felt that these individuals had uh, really developed themselves based on merit uh, and they didn't get uh, philanthropy from you know white uh, society. And we know that Garvey, Garvey's presence had a tremendous impact on the Harlem Renaissance, even though some of those artists might not want to give him, give him uh, credit. But uh, once again, in that legacy chapter, I found a number of entrepreneurs throughout the country and even in New York City that pay homage to, uh, to, to, to Booker T. Uh, Washington. Like I said, Philip A. Patton, for example, had a lot of great respect. Uh, a lot of them embraced his, his, his philosophy that uh, of self-help, um, you know, develop something, make yourself an, uh, an economic uh, niche and uh, be in demand by, by every, everyone, even, and also, you know, the, the, the Afri African-American community. What I found is that philosophy, those ideas persisted in the business community up until about 19, 1955. And some of them even named their business associations uh, uh, after uh, 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 Booker, Booker T. Washington, you know, the Booker T. Washington Business Association, for, uh, for example. So I was surprised to the extent that I, I found his influence and how it filtered into communities, like I said, all the way up until about uh, 19, 1955. But that thought process is what I'm saying was, you know, uh, filtered in, in these communities. And not just New York City, I found... Uh, found it throughout New York State. You know, I did an article on uh, the National Negro Business League's influence in New York State. And I found, I found chapters of the National Negro Business League here in Buffalo, where I live. I found them in Rochester. I found them in um, Ithaca, New York, believe it or not. Um, so it's, 
it, it's persistent, but I just, I, I'm trying to think of some entrepreneurs, specific entrepreneurs uh, in New York. I'm going back to Garvey because Garvey had, he had some businesses in, uh, in New York, New York City, but he, he highly respected uh, Booker T. Washington, very much so. Absolutely. Well, what's interesting about uh, Garvey and uh, especially Booker T. Washington, it seems to me that both of them um, were always far more popular and influential with the people, the sort of grassroots uh, than the intellectuals. And I feel like that's kind of shaded the way that especially Booker T. Washington is remembered. Um, I, I feel like the way the conventional narrative, again, which you have, I think, very, um, you, you very effectively have disputed the conventional narrative, but, but I, I think it, it almost disregards his influence and popularity with rank and file African Americans who were living through the kind of realities he was trying to fix. Um, can you give me a sense, I mean, not just in business, but in general for his popularity and what he meant to people around the country in New York and otherwise uh, at this time? I think, I think generally he was uh, respected by, you know, uh, lower economic class, middle class, uh, different, different uh, classes of African-Americans. As I alluded to earlier, uh, you know, a number of the intellectuals were against him, but if we look at the class structure, he was influenced by many of those individuals. I mean, if you look at um, the Tuskegee machine, for example, that Lewis Harlem highlights and Du Bois first highlight, those organizations were members of the, you know, higher economic class of the, of the Afri African-American community. Um, I would say that after, you know, when he gave that Atlanta exposition address, white elites made him the leader, but as time went on, uh, the masses or his people in general, uh, you know, em embraced uh, textbooks on him. Uh, they tend to highlight that debate between he and Du Bois. And of course, people in the 21st century and the 20th century, you know, they, they align themselves with, uh, with Du Bois based on what's, uh, what's been written. And I think it gives, it doesn't really give a true depiction of what, uh, what Wash Washington uh, was about, you know. I mean, even my students. I mean, most of the times, uh, I'm I'm with uh, you know Du Bois. I, I I'm along those lines, you know. But I try to teach the learning that these people operated, you know. And then perhaps you have a better appreciation of what they're going through and why they're proposing these specific ideas. Don't don't uh, don't use the setting of. Uh, our times to judge them in, in, in their times. But yeah, I, he was very respected, uh, you know, very much so. Well, yeah, you make a very important point and you make it several times in the book. I mean, we, we're talking about the Nadir and he has to operate within reality and he has to help uh, uplift African-Americans in the best way that he can. And, and so I think understanding the context is the only way you can even start to have a fair assessment of Washington. And I appreciate so much the way that you do it. And I think it's also interesting, uh, maybe I'm going too far here, but it, it strikes me that if we just sort of take at face value, white elites like the Atlanta speech and Du Bois doesn't, and that's the whole story. 
it seems to me that's doing a disservice to rank and file African-Americans, sort of the, the, the people who aren't powerful, the people who don't have resources, who probably aren't on the record, because it's sort of dismissive of their attraction to Washington. And, and, and it's, it, it does a disservice if we just sort of superficially take the old cliches. Yeah, and that's where the revisionists come in, you know, to that's right. try to try to paint a, uh, a different uh, story. Believe it or not, I was in the uh, the uh, Tuskegee archives, and they let me. I, I don't know why they did it. They let me wander in around. You know, usually they bring materials to you, but they let me wander around in the archives and look at materials, look through boxes, and so on and so forth. And I found that uh, Du Bois sent to uh, Booker T. Washington after he did that Atlanta uh, exposition address or gave that Atlanta exposition address. And as you know, he, in that letter, the original letter, uh, he congratulated Washington. He said, you did a fine, fine job. Uh, you know, you offered an olive branch uh, to, to these people. So he showed re respect in that. Because I read it and I, you know, I wasn't surprised but I was surprised to see the original letter. You know, I gently put it back in place for other people so that they could uh, have access uh, uh, to it. So yeah, that's where the revisionist folks come in. So, I mean, I think in the 20th century, uh, what, uh, uh, what the fifties on up uh, to uh, close to now, People have gotten that story about Washington, but we do have revisionist people coming out now and say, well, Washington was right, you know. Uh, so people are coming out and trying to uh, show a broader picture of, of him. And that's a good thing. Absolutely. And I appreciate it. And I appreciate um, you, you have a line in here. Uh, there are several lines in the book that, that I really uh, appreciate and will share with students in the future. But one of them is, uh, just sort of methodological, you say, it is important to examine complex historical figures such as Washington from a number of different perspectives, uh, instead of just, in this case, instead of just writing him off as an accommodationist. And, and I feel like in the old way, which is still the conventional way of looking at Washington, it's very one-dimensional. And I appreciate how you add so many layers to it. And, and so it's, it's really um, I, I said it in the beginning, it's really important uh, revisionist work and very uh, nuanced, and I appreciate it so much. And I'm even more appreciative that you've brought some of this work to the pages of the New York History Journal. Uh, so I hope everybody will check that out uh, in uh, issue 102.1. Um, now, I'll say briefly, um, You've uh, also written about other elements of African-American history in the Empire State uh, that uh, people watching this will probably be interested in. Um, there's one uh, that I haven't had a chance to look at yet, but I'll ask you about it briefly. Uh, you wrote about, it, it's a, sh a short book called Dr. Skinner's Remarkable School. Um, can you tell me a bit about that? Well, Another interest of mine is the uh, Underground Railroad. And, um, you know, New York State was a rich area in the Underground Railroad. Uh, a, a lot of us know that uh, Detroit, Michigan, and Niagara Falls, New York, those were entry points, major entry points 
going uh, into Canada for uh, Underground Railroad. I, I teach a course on the under, Underground Railroad and uh, a student, a student uh, friend of mine did, did some work on uh, uh, the ethnic community in, in Niagara Falls. Uh, and, you know, he looked at Germans, Italians, uh, Russians, and so on and so forth. But he came across this individual, uh, Platt uh, Henry Skinner. And, um, you know, his research showed me that Skinner had a school in Niagara Falls, 1858 to about uh, 1862. And that school um, was sort of like, uh, it, he first had a school in Washington, D.C., where he educated white and black students that were handicapped, uh, deaf, blind, or mute. And he was a very controversial person. And um, he was anti-slavery. And he, and he was uh, like Du Bois in the sense that he didn't sugarcoat. He was very blunt. And of course, he made enemies. So he was run out of Washington. And he came to Niagara Falls, New York. And he set up a school strictly for what he called uh, colored students. And um, he had this school in Niagara Falls, as I said, 18, uh, 60, uh, 1858 to 1862. And he started a newspaper called The Mute and the Blind. And in that newspaper, he highlighted his anti-slavery um, ideas. And I think he was a, a, a conductor on the Underground Railroad. And why? Because in his paper, The Mute and the Blind, he speaks in codes. He talks about fugitive slave or writes about fugitive slaves uh, fleeing and he's encouraged, he's asking people, what would you do? Would you help them as God would want you to help them? If the panting deer is running, are you going to turn them into the law? Or are you going to help them? He talks in codes like that. And also uh, in a quarterly statement that he produced for people that uh, were giving his school funding to highlight the people that gave monies. But in that statement, he talked about how he went to St. Catharines, Ontario, to bring the children of fugitive slaves to um, Niagara Falls, New York, to train them in his school. And I've seen census reports, which really show where some of those students came from Canada. So I'm thinking he interacted with these fugitive slave communities and some of their parents were very fearful that their children would be apprehended and taken up uh, into slavery. But I haven't found anything like specifically saying he was, but I really believe that he was. So in, in, uh, in that book, I really highlight his activities uh, in Niagara Falls, uh, his anti-slavery uh, ideas. And he, eventually he got chased out of uh Niagara Falls, New York, and he went to uh, Trenton, New Jersey. He set up a, the same school there. Um, and the, uh, he made enemies there, and uh, he died, uh, I think it was 1866. Don't quote me on that date. I have to look it up. But he made enemies there. Uh, they burned his school down, you know, there, and they did it in Washington. So he's one of these very uh, bold people that you either liked him or you didn't like him. But I focus on him because... Of, I believe, I think he was uh, an Underground Railroad conductor. That's a fascinating story. And I'm, now I'm going to have to quickly get my hands on, on that one and, and, and uh, yeah. check it out. That, that's really interesting. And actually, uh, that fits 
sounds like it fits nicely with your uh, next big uh, monograph, which is coming out uh, later this year, uh, which is called uh, Blacks in Niagara Falls. Is that right? And it's coming out with SUNY Press. Um, yes. I'd love to uh, have you uh, come back and talk about that in depth once it's out. But for now, uh, give us a taste for the overall story, some of the key themes and uh, turning points in the history of African-American uh, life in Niagara Falls in this, this uh, new book of yours. It's one of the hardest projects that I had to ever do because uh, the source base was so minuscule. Um, yes. Almost nothing there, and not just on Blacks, but uh, other ethnic groups within Niagara Falls, not much information, not much uh, written. And um, in that book, well, the book basically traces the uh, African-American community of Niagara Falls from 1850, 1849, 1850, all the way up to uh, 1985. Focuses on community development and um, leadership. You know, I give a general argument that uh, you know the leadership was progressive in terms of uh, formating community, uh, you know, d development. So I really look at the leaders that I found, and this argument or this approach is based on the minuscule literature or source base um, th that I that I found, and. Um, you know, when, when we get from 1940 up to 1985, I was fortunate to be able to interview. I interviewed about 62 formal recorded interviews, and I must have talked to about, you know, informally beyond these interviews, at least 80 people. I started, I think, uh, 2002. And uh, so I really immersed myself in that community to find out their histories because it wasn't in uh, traditional sources in general. So um, yeah, one of my favorite uh, parts of the book is the early part where I'm focusing on the early years with the Underground Railroad. Uh, and then another favorite part is the 1920s when I start looking at the migration movements that are coming uh, into Ni Niagara Falls. Uh, 19 during World War Two, I call it the second great migration. Some people have problems with that, but uh, I find that the highest influx of the African Americans come in in uh, around World War II and, and after. And um, I was able to interview a lot of people, uh, senior citizens that remember those time periods, and they were able to give me some very fruitful uh, information. So I really enjoyed that in terms of uh, talking to senior citizens that talked about uh, their parents uh, migrating from the South and coming up to the North. Uh, perhaps a father would come first, uh, work for a while, set up uh, some kind of base for their families, and then their families would, would come up and, you know, they would establish community. One of the first things they would do after their families were secure to an extent, I found them developing churches. So a lot of the things that are in uh, urban community studies, particularly African-American community studies, you find, I found those same things, uh, you know, within the, the Niagara Falls community. I guess my study is uh, it's a borderline, borderland community in the sense that Canada is right there. So there's a lot of uh, 
interaction between uh, the United States and Canada from the Underground Railroad. And then when we get to the 40s, 50s, and 60s, national activities that are going on between uh, Canada and United, United States. Uh, you know, the Niagara Movement, for example, um, even dealing, going back to Washington, uh, the uh, Niagara Falls had a local branch of the National Negro Business League. And then what, what they did one time is they went over to uh, Canada, uh, Niagara Falls, Ontario, and they interacted with some of the uh, African Canadians. And they had debate between who, who's the best leader for the, their racial group, Booker T or uh, Du Bois. And, and the individuals in Canada, they supported, they got into a heated uh, debate. And, and the, you know, the, the people that were part of the Niagara Falls local branch of the Negro Business League, they supported uh, Washington. So that, you know, that, that was... Uh, that was very interesting. So, but um, my interviews, some of my interviews, I, I tried to convey to the people uh, to give them a sense of what was going on in that community. But once again, for me, that was a that was a difficult study because minuscule uh, source base. I hope I don't have to encounter anything like that again. <laughs> well, it sounds uh, on the one hand uh, like it was an incredibly laborious uh, process, but on the other hand, sounds like it turns out to have been well worth it because it sounds like a very rich story that you tell. And I, I now am even more excited uh, to get my hands on this book. I, I think it comes out a couple months from now. And um, uh, if, you, if, if, you'll, uh, if you'll do us the honor, I'd love to have you back to talk about it once, uh, once it's out and once I've had a chance to read it. Um, thank you so much, uh, Michael, for, for joining us. Uh, to talk about all of this wonderful scholarship, uh, most especially uh, your new article for New York History, but your broader interventions on Booker T. Washington. I'm, I'm so grateful for your time. Well, thanks. Thank you for uh, having me. Uh, it's a nice thing. You know, you do these, this research and, you know, you put it out there and when people are interested, that's, that's always, uh, it makes, makes me happy. I'm sure it makes others, others happy that produce researches, research as well. Well, I'm, I'm happy to get a chance to talk to you about it, and I'm so grateful. Thanks so much. Thank you.